What a joy it is to be able to gather together on this Lord's Day morning. Uh, Kale announced it earlier, but certainly it would be a powerful thing to recollect that, as you know, our service schedule has been a bit preempted for the last, well, really since the beginning of the year, hasn't it? And even to some extent for portions of last year as well. But uh, our elders have made the determination in light of the, the sickness or at least the other precautions to make those changes for at least the last several weeks. But beginning next Sunday, our services will revert to our usual or normal schedule. 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings appear to Bible study, followed by 10.30 worship hour, followed by the 5.30 p.m. Sunday worship service, and 7 o'clock Wednesday evening for Bible study. So let's keep all those particular arrangements and those schedules in our mind and appreciate again that God allows us the great privilege of meeting His name. The songs that we just sang together a moment ago, of course, reminded us in so many ways about the majesty of God's love toward us. And today we'll be looking at a lesson I've entitled, you can already see it on the wall, What Must I Do to Be Lost? Now maybe at first thought that question may seem a bit puzzling. And it may well be that a part of our attack to it will also be a little bit puzzling, but... I do think before our time is completed that it will be a very meaningful exercise to appreciate some great mistakes that many people make so that we can certainly not make the same ones. Without a doubt, the single greatest personal question that a person would ask is, what must I do to be saved? And you and I all know how that that would impact not only life upon earth for us, but certainly all of eternity as well. In Acts chapter 2, you and I recall that those penitent Pentecostians, in essence, asked that question. In light of Peter's marvelous presentation and the sermon that was delivered that day, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do for what? They weren't talking about what they were going to have for lunch. They were interested in knowing what they needed to do to have, in essence, the forgiveness from putting to death the Son of God. And Peter, of course, and the others, by inspiration, informed them of what was needed. Perhaps the most direct example, though, is in Acts 16, where there, of all people, a jailer in Philippi. You recall that at midnight, an earthquake had taken place, and Paul and Silas were singing praises to God. You may recall that the prison doors, however, were opened, and the shackles that were binding the prisoners were loosened. And that jailer was terrified. He sprang in, the text says, where Paul and Silas was, and he asked, What must I do to be saved? Paul, of course, by inspiration, was able to tell tell him completely that answer. But isn't it fair to say that if the question, What must I do to be saved, is important, does it not follow that what must I do to be lost is just as important? And so today, why don't we give at least one appreciation to a set of answers that might be considered, and like I said, there will be some misconceptions that sometimes can trouble us, and let's set those aside. As you and I close that slide, what must I do to be lost? I would suggest the first matter that might be of interesting import would be to appreciate why both those questions are so significant. We are so accustomed, aren't we, to an appreciation where individuals are grouped in all kinds of arrangements. 
And sometimes there is a very large set of gradations from the lowest to the highest in whatever form that may be. But according to the Word of God, every single accountable human being is in one of two categories. That's it. It is not as if there is an almost limitless number of possibilities. It is not as if there is even a small number such as half a dozen. Two. In Psalm 1, in fact, the opening stanza of the psalmist, we are reminded of this rather remarkable set of verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor his seed in the sight of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Did you note it with me? Two classes the inspired psalmist noted. On the one hand was the ungodly, on the other hand the righteous. That's it. Now humankind perhaps would wish far more opportunities or categories than that. But God said there was two in the Old Testament. You might also observe in the New Testament era. What was it the Lord said in Matthew 25, verse 46? After sharing at least a powerful recollection of the thought of the judgment and the nature of some who would be found lacking in others that would be joyously pleasing to God, Jesus said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, and the righteous into life eternal. Two classes, two categories. I've invited you to note at the top of that slide a rehearsal of that which you and I have just noted. Which grouping are you and I in at this moment? It's important to be honest. It's important, in fact, to be very forthright about that. Am I in the category of the righteous or am I in the category of the ungodly? Maybe one last thought then would be this. Isn't it interesting that Jesus also had something to say as He spoke those words in Matthew 25? Those that were in that category of the righteous were that way because their life was one of obedience. Their life was one of dedication, if you please, to that which the Master had said. That same matter, thus, will lead us to the next observation. Not only two classes, two categories... What about two roads in life? One more time, doesn't that almost seem so limiting? Two roads, and yet that's what the Lord said. Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus said that. It wasn't me. It wasn't any other human preacher that's ever walked the planet. Many times we've quoted the verse, but the Lord initiated it. It was He who said there are only two roadways through life, and every single person at any moment's traveling one or the other. Am I traveling the narrow way that leads to life? 
or the wide one, the broad one, the easy one to travel, but it leads to destruction. The choice is left to you and me, isn't it? What must I do to be lost? Well, certainly one of the things we can say, be ungodly. Travel the wide road. Moses put it like this in Exodus 23, 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. The majority are lost, have always been lost, and always will be lost. That's just the way it is. It is the few that are traveling toward life, and don't you and I want to be in that number? Isn't that the roadway that you and I wish to travel? Though difficult it is, though challenging it is, but it the destination worth it. No wonder in that regard, let's close that slide by making this interesting observation. That text that I just asked you to notice in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, the Lord was fairly early in His earthly ministry at that time. To begin one's preaching with words like, enter in at the straight gate. But Lord, that's hard. I'll stand out if I do this. I won't be able to be numbered with those that are reckoned as normal. Well, fine. The Lord said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Maybe it is in that light. The next slide is one final observation before we launch into the specific application to the question of the lesson today. Not only are the two categories, not only two roads, but ponder this with me, would you? When it comes to dying, the Bible identifies but two kinds of death. That's it. But someone might say, come on now, isn't that overly restrictive? Isn't that overly demanding and strict? All you and I could say is, what does the Bible teach about this? Every single human being, every single one of us, will die in one of these categories. Will we die in the Lord, borrowing the language of Revelation 14, 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Now you'll notice rest, a memory of appreciation and goodness, favor with the Lord. That's the kind of death I'd like, and I'm sure we all would. What about the other possibility in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9? There, Paul, the inspired proclaimer of the Word, said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now, that particular statement from Jesus urges an element of comfort and solace in John 14. To you who are troubles, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on somebody, who is it? Those that know not God those that obey not the gospel. So how do I be lost? Don't obey the gospel. Don't try to know God. That certainly will do it. To say all of that that way is to then prompt a few applications. So we've learned two roadways, two classifications, two ways to die. Which one am I in? Which one are you? Here are four misconceptions 
that are so dangerous. They really apply some of that which we've already discussed, but do so in a particular way. Misconceptions, misunderstandings. Let me share with you the first one so that you can appreciate what is meant by it. What must I do to be lost? Mistake being with God's people for being one of God's people. That'll do it. May I say it again? What must I do to be lost? Mistake being with God's people as equal to being one of God's people. You know, just to hear that, certainly we wouldn't be apt to think that that's a great danger, but isn't it really? How often do we associate perhaps with somebody or a group of people and maybe during the character of that association, we come to think, I'm as good as she is. I'm as good as he is. My life is just as noteworthy as that person. And maybe over time, I begin to think, I'm equal to them. Fact is, we all know association with someone doesn't make me them. I could attend a nationwide conference of accountants and I could listen to the presentations and I might even participate in some workshops, but it does not make me an accountant. I'm not. I could watch my dad work on a car. Doesn't make me an auto mechanic. I could attend every church service there is. Doesn't make me a Christian. I can even participate in work days and other sessions along with members of the church. Doesn't make me a Christian. You see the point. I could thus be led to think something is very dangerous. I might come to think that associating with God's people makes me one of God's people, but it doesn't. It never has. The Word of God is very clear on this, isn't it? What's involved in making a person one of God's people? Is it enough to say it? Is it enough to perhaps think it? Is it enough to have someone else confer that right on you? Oh, absolutely not. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, read it like this. Paul, as he addressed the churches of Galatia, wasn't it true that to them he said, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Sounds great. But then he explains it like this. Notice again, he said, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus for... That's a word of explanation. This explains what he just said. How you become children of God by faith? For as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Who put Him on? Not those that thought they did. Not those who had someone tell them they had. It's those who had been baptized for the remission of their sins. They were the ones who had put Him on in baptism. They were the ones that were children of God by faith. They were the ones who thus were a child of God because God decreed it so. One more time, it isn't enough to associate with God's people and conclude that that makes me one of them. I have to follow that which the Lord had said that will make me one of God's children. You might also notice among the passages I ask you to consider that in Matthew 7, that very text that Brother Greg read a moment ago, 
doesn't that in fact ring so powerfully with this discussion? Jesus speaking said, Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works. Sounds fantastic. We've preached in your name. We have in fact acted a number of ways using your name as the impetus and motivation. But he had just preceded it by saying in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord Himself declaring the remarkable truth that just because they had thought it, just because they maybe had even labored under the insistence of the sure certainty of this, it was not so, and in fact... Jesus said it had never been so. He said, I never knew you. He didn't say I had known you at one time. They had never become a member of the body. They had never, in fact, drawn themselves to that point of being a rightful, designated child of God. So could we not say how dangerous it is to think that associating with God's people makes me one of them? It doesn't. Certainly they might be great friends, wonderful acquaintances, And they ought to be living lives of great motivation, but it doesn't make me one of them. Let's try another one. What else might be a very dangerous way of thinking? It's at the bottom of that slide. It has to do with Christ. Specifically, it is perhaps easy for some to make the mistake of thinking that having some of the characteristics of Christ puts me in Christ. May I say again, to have some of the characteristics of Christ lead me to think that that puts me in Christ. Here are some good examples. Wouldn't everybody agree Jesus was compassionate? In Mark 6 verse 34, there was a large multitude of people. They had been with Him for a long time, several days the text says and they didn't have anything to eat. Jesus was concerned that if they left in this state of weariness, this state of hunger, that they might faint by the way. And so the Lord took five loaves, two fishes, and fed 5,000 men with it. He had compassion for them. He was concerned about them. He cared for the circumstance in which they then were. Not only that, In Mark 10, verses 46 and following, there was a man who was blind. Bartimaeus was his name. And you and I recall the earnestness with which the Lord exhibited kindness toward him. The man was blind. And so the Lord was compassionate. He was kind. He was friendly. He had great care for other people. And so today, would it not be easy to say, well, I'm compassionate. I'm caring, I'm loving, I take good care of my family. And my heart hurts for those who struggle so, and I try to, in fact, assist and help benevolently. So you see, I have all the attributes Jesus would want me to have. I'm friendly, kind, compassionate, loving, and caring. That's exactly the way I ought to be, and no more is needed than this. So having some of the characteristics of Jesus in the mind of some would be enough to say that means everything is in order. Is that so? 
Is that so? You might recall that there was a gentleman in Acts chapter 10 named Cornelius. Devout, prayerful, best neighbor you could ever ask for. He was in fact impressive in a number of ways, far outstripping likely most of us sitting here today. But you know, God was concerned about him for another reason. He needed the gospel. He needed the precious words of Jesus Christ. And isn't it so that he obeyed that near the close of that chapter? But as you and I close this slide before us, make the application with me. I have some of the characteristics of Christ. Does that then stamp my life as an approved thing before God and put me in light, you see, of entrance into heaven? If I start thinking that way, that takes us back to the question, what must I do to be lost? Because that's what's going to move me in that direction. I will never have the fullness of the attributes the Lord Jesus Christ had. I'm a sinner. I make poor judgments on occasions. I fail in doing the things I should do just as was we were led in prayer by Brother Dennis earlier today. The Lord was perfect. Hebrews 4.15, He never sinned. Not in word, not in deed, not in thought. Never. I will never arrive at that level of completion, that level of perfection, and yea, none of the rest of us will either. Didn't John put it like this in 1 John 1, 8? If any man say, I have no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. With all of that said, doesn't it move us to appreciate being compassionate and kind and caring? The Bible does demand that we do this. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, to borrow the words of Ephesians 4.32. But yet, obedience. We've mentioned already today about the necessity of baptism, but what about faithful living after baptism? Doesn't the Bible encourage us along this line each day? The requirement is put before us to walk the walk of faithfulness, Colossians 3.12. To walk that walk, Ephesians 4.24-26, that describes that life of dedication to the Lord. That means molding our thinking so that every thought is brought into captivity into Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.3. It means to make choices with regard to our language, Matthew 12, 36, 37, and 38. There are certain things we will not say. Other things we, of course, with excitement look forward to saying. Although the world will frown many times upon it. Isn't it interesting that these two considerations, as far as what do I need to do to be lost, start believing, start thinking that associating with God's people is equivalent to being one of them, and start thinking that to have some of the characteristics of Jesus in some degree makes me approved in His sight. What about a third thing? What else is worthy of our consideration? This one involves the truth. Another thing, what must I do to be lost? Start thinking that knowing the truth is equivalent to obeying it. 
Say again, knowing the truth is equivalent to obeying it. Now that too can be a very strong temptation. And the devil is very good at encouraging it. There are a lot of people throughout the ages that have known a lot, I suppose, about the Bible. And there are also those who have met their death. And their obituary will say something like this. Mr. X was affiliated with the Church of Christ. I have a question. Where do you read about that in the New Testament? It's a sorrowful thing to consider. You were either a member of it or you were not. Jesus never gave a third category. To know the truth, is that the same as obeying it? It would be easy, wouldn't it, to perhaps, even from the time of youth, to know some of the wonderful records of the Bible, to know about Noah and his faithfulness, and to know about David and Daniel and Jesus and Paul and a host of others. And maybe even as the years roll by and one becomes a teenager thereafter, to have in fact settled one's life in some regard with regard to these things. So you know a lot about the Bible. Perhaps a good degree of appreciation concerning it. Question, have you applied those things to heart? Have you given your life in obedience to it? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. James 1 verse 22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Isn't it true that we can greatly deceive ourselves in that way? I've asked you to consider along that same line what the Lord had said in the lesson text. Back in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, would you rehearse it with me in your mind? Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. There were those under the Lord's description on the day of judgment, and they called Him Lord. They knew who He was. They were mindful, no doubt, that He had gone to Calvary. They were understanding of the fact of what was claimed to be accomplished by the shedding of His blood at Calvary. They knew who He was. Furthermore, they had behaved in many ways in light of that. They had cast out demons. They had preached and taught in various ways in light of what He had Himself asserted. But there was a problem. Verse 23, the Lord addresses them and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They thought they were doing wonderful things. He said, you're a worker of iniquity. You're a worker of ungodliness. You're a worker of that which is opposed to my will. I suspect they were shocked. I suspect in some way they labored under the illusion of what we have been discussing today. They thought knowing the truth was enough. You didn't have to be so much dedicated to it. But isn't it interesting that that has never been satisfactory? In the Old Testament, it wasn't enough for the children of Israel to know what God said. They were demanded to do it, weren't they? Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. It wasn't enough for David to know what the will of God was. It was expected that he do it. And today, it isn't enough that Randy Bybee know what God says. God expects him to do it. 
And you can put your name in that sentence as well. Isn't it rather fascinating to notice in James 2.19, if there's ever a being that believes in Christ and believes in His power, it's the devil. The devil knows Him. I say that this way, the devil is keenly aware of what the Christ has accomplished and shall yet accomplish, and yet the devil won't be saved. In fact, there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Maybe in that regard, let's close our lesson like this. A fourth misconception, a fourth issue that is some source of misunderstanding, this one having to do with God's blessings. Isn't it true that we live, even as we prayed earlier today, in a nation that's so greatly blessed physically, materially, and in a way that offers such provision? And yet sometimes it's rather tempting to think that in my current station and allotment of life, I enjoy great blessings from God. That must mean that God is pleased with all attributes of my life. Is it true that well-being and happiness, if you please, on my part is equivalent to a declaration of God's blessings in every regard. Oh, that's never been true. You'll notice on that slide a few verses, a few things that we will just consider in passing. Do you remember Moses in Hebrews 11.25? There, as the inspired writer walked along the corridors of biblical history and highlighted the faithfulness of many, he talked about Moses who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, Moses made a directive choice. He could have remained there in high estate in Egypt and enjoyed all the things that worldliness had to offer. But he willfully and voluntarily turned his back on it in order to please what God would demand of him. You see, the happiness that went then with the fullness of worldly things was not a good thing there. Sometimes today, it can be a great challenge to us. If we allow our worldly things to separate us from God, they've gone too far. That rich young ruler, you see, loved his possessions in Luke 18, verses 18 to 23, more than he loved Jesus the Christ. If I'm in that position, I'm no better off than the rich young ruler. I too, you see, am worshiping these things rather than worshiping the God of heaven. May I never think then that blessings and finery and things of the world is equivalent to God's stamp of approval on everything in my life. As you'll notice on that slide, many times in the Bible we have the record of those who were enjoying a greatness in worldly provision, but yet were separated from God. Look at the church in Revelation 3. Do you recall the church at Laodicea? That was a congregation, and no doubt many things about them would be highly prized in the world in which we live. They had physical things in abundance. They enjoyed a prosperity connected with the matters that this life afforded. In fact, they made this statement, I don't need anything, if I may paraphrase the wording of verses 14 and 15. 
But then the Lord in response said this to them. You don't realize it, but you're miserable, naked, poor, wretched, and blind. Five things, he said, and you're every one of them, and though you don't even see it. They thought that their money was everything needed, and therefore they were without Christ. How far better it is to be bereft of the fullness of those worldly matters and yet to enjoy pure association with Jesus Christ. It's true then that sometimes as we give thought to the blessing of this life, we appreciate that they can, of course, lead us to think things that are not quite proper. What must I do to be lost? What must I do to be lost? That question is not exactly as easy to answer as the first one I raised. What must I do to be saved? That was pretty easy. To be lost, anything that's not the answer to the first one. But the particular applications today, I hope, have been helpful to each of us. In brief summary, they again were these. There were only two classes, and you and I certainly want to be a member of the one that's righteous. But as far as what must I do to be lost... Start thinking that being with God's people makes me one of God's people. It doesn't. What must I do to be lost? Start thinking that exemplifying some of the characteristics of Christ make me one of Christ's children. It doesn't. What must I do to be lost? Think that knowing the truth is equivalent to obeying it. It isn't. What must I do to be lost? Mistakenly suppose that fullness enriches, or at least happiness in that regard, is equivalent in every way to God blessing me and granting me as my life is fully approved in His sight. It doesn't say that. Today, as we close this lesson, maybe it would be fair to say that all of us want to be saved. And we know that that answer, the Word of God, thankfully directly presents in these words. Jesus said, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. John 8, 24. Jesus said, Nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Jesus said, If ye confess me not, neither will I confess you before my Father in heaven. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. In Mark 16, 16, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And therefore, we stand fully upon his proclamation. It may be today someone in this audience, someone in this assembly, would be in a position of knowing the greatness of the will of God, but as we've learned today, knowing it is not enough. Won't you obey it? Won't you step out on the reality of faith by believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? We'd be delighted to assist you today to help in the ways that we can. If you have known that way of life and the faithfulness and the strength that went with it, but at some point in the past you began to move along a tangent line, you began to move along a course of action that was not the one the Lord described. You aren't traveling the narrow way anymore, and you know it. You're traveling the wide way. You need to make a U-turn fast and get on to the other roadway. 
today, if we could help you by praying on your behalf, if you'll confess those sins and you will, in fact, make repentance of them, the Lord's promised to forgive you, and we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. Today, if we could offer prayers along these lines or just for prayers of strength and sustenance and necessary spiritual provision, we'd be honored to offer that prayer as well. A song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of some assistance today, we would invite you, in fact, urge you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.